Oh, that is so 1970s. We live in a world of passing fashions, easily identifiable in the music, the cars, the gadgets, the style that typify decades like the 1960s or the 70s. But it's not just decades. Marketers break their backs to try to predict and exploit, for example, this year's must-have Christmas toy. Children are notoriously prone to fads, playing obsessively with some uh, probably grotesquely expensive toy, buying all the accessories they can find off the internet before getting bored with it and moving on to the next thing. Even among adults, we are also prone to the vagaries of fashion. This year's must-have can easily make our cars or houses look dated. All the time we fall into the artificially created world of fashion that leads to greater wastage and increased spending, where we discard things simply because they are out as someone who keeps clothes until they literally fall off me, I remember being horrified the first time I heard a teenager say, oh, mom, that was so last year. But then again, my problem was never that I was inclined to wear things that had gone out of fashion, but that before Gwen got her hands on me, I was much more likely to wear things that had never been in fashion in the first place. Psalm 129 is about a life that is not prone to spiritual faddishness, a life that is rooted and stable. It's a psalm about eternal things. It presents for us a contrast between what's passing and what's going to last. There's a very clear, simple, almost childlike series of diagrams that you may have seen. It's designed to illustrate the facts of the Christian gospel. It was designed in Australia, and it's like an Australian journey into life, if you remember that. And it's called Two Ways to Live, and it's very simple. It's about how at one stage we can live uh, as, as gods of our own life. And then because Christ has taken what separates us from God, we now live with, uh, with, with Jesus as the crown over our life. Uh, very straightforward. But it simply highlights the fact that there are indeed two ways to live in this world. And this psalm is about two ways in which we can live. I have called them the way of endurance and blessing or the way of futility and fruitlessness. The way of endurance and blessing or the way of futility and fruitlessness. This is another one of those journey psalms for singing on the road, like 124, you remember. We have preserved for us that the first line from the leader who says, let Israel say, it's a sort of an all together now, and then everybody repeats the first line and joins in. The trouble is, if you look at Psalm 124, where you have the same technique, you can imagine them wanting to sing Psalm 124. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. If the Lord had not been on our side, praise the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But what about 129? Can you imagine the reaction to, every, to whoever started that one up? Surely they have oppressed me from my youth. All together now, 
You can imagine a few people back at the end of the line going, oh no, Asaf's forgotten to take his happy pills again this morning. Get over it, Asaf. Stop harking back to those miserable school days. But of course, that's not how the psalm develops. It's not a wallowing in self-pity. It's another psalm of thanks. They have greatly oppressed me, but they have not gained the victory over me. And yet that also is maybe a little bit too simplistic as a summary of the psalm, because the oppression has been serious. It has been as if God's people have been lying prone on the ground and their enemies have driven sharp plows with cutting teeth over their bare backs. The image is powerful in the bloody cruelty that it conjures up for us. And what's more, it's not a temporary passing trouble. It has always been like this. From my youngest days, the psalmist writes, I have lived in a world where I'm a stranger, where I'm at odds with those around me, where I'm bound as the rule rather than the exception to suffer mockery, ridicule, or even outright aggression. And as he writes this psalm and makes it one of the psalms for the journey, what he's doing is he's putting into the mouths of people every year as they go to worship the reminder that worshiping this God is not one big praise party. Worshiping this God, living for him, means identifying with a hated community. In this, he was prophesying what Jesus himself would say in his final sermon to his disciples in John 15, verse 18. They hated me, they will also hate you. Let me make a quick aside at this stage, just to step out of the psalm for a moment. Of all the misunderstandings, even the corruptions of the pilgrimage of faith that you come across from time to time, the one that I find hardest to have patience with is what has become known as the prosperity or the health and wealth gospel. Put simply, it's the notion that if we are truly living by faith, God will prosper our businesses, we will remain healthy, or at least we'll be healed when we're ill, and all we turn our hand to will succeed in worldly terms. Sounds pretty good to me. Trouble is, that's not the message of Scripture. From beginning to end. One of the first stories in the Bible is of a righteous person being killed by somebody who was jealous. In the very last chapters of the Bible, you see the martyrs and the people on earth crying out, How long, how long, O Lord? You only have to look at some of the metaphors of the Christian life, the struggle, the fight, the battle, the journey. Promises of health and prosperity may be the message of isolated verses wrested out of their context, but it is not the story of God's pilgrim people, Old Testament or New. As a quick example, take the book of Proverbs, which could easily be misunderstood as promising wealth and health for all who obey its rules. But the overall context of Proverbs is about wise living. And some of the Proverbs are about exercising good judgment. You work hard, you're more likely to be wealthy than the lazy idle fool. You show respect to your neighbor, you're more likely to gain the respect of others. But the overarching context is of the eternal. 
If you read the very early chapters of Proverbs, right back to the first chapter of Proverbs, verse 11, we read of innocent blood being spilled. There is the realization that good people suffer and good people die young. And therefore, the promises of wealth and prosperity must lie in another sphere altogether. The hope of the afterlife isn't as well developed somewhere like Proverbs as in the New Testament, but it's there nonetheless. So, those who will hold up a life of pain-free wealth and success as the optimum state for the Christian are not reading the same Bible as I am. It wasn't the experience of God's Old Testament people, certainly wasn't the experience of Christ, wasn't the experience of Paul, and hasn't been the experience of the faithful Christian church over the years, even today. I remember attending a church once, and on the bookstall was a volume by an American preacher called John something or other, and it was entitled, Ten Reasons Why God Wants You Rich. I was interested that beside it in the bookstall was volume two by the same author entitled, It's Not Working, Pastor John. Letters from those who didn't find blessing through book one. I'm serious. You read book two and what do you find? More guilt heaped upon the reader. You're not praying enough. You're not believing enough. You have some unconfessed sin somewhere hidden in your life that you mightn't even be aware of. Much easier if Pastor John had developed a fully biblical understanding of the pilgrim journey of faith, a more Christ-based and more Christ-modeled road of obedience marked by suffering. Much more helpful if he had reminded his flock like the people of Israel, it was more likely that there would be days when it seemed they had been oppressed from their youth, that the plow had run over them. When, like the disciples, they were hated because the world had hated and rejected their Lord. Had Pastor John done so, he would have been a better pastor for the sheep. The psalmist in 129 doesn't trivialize the trouble. It's been ugly and painful and long-standing. And the one quality that stands through in these early verses is that of endurance. The first way that we can live, the road of endurance and blessing. They have oppressed me, they have plowed my back, but they have not gained victory over me. Or as Paul put it in those words from Romans that I read, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice also in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. The non-faddishness of the Christian journey that we endure long enough so that our experiences, rather than just assaulting us, can actually produce something. That we endure long enough so that our experiences can actually produce something. Perseverance, character, hope. The sad thing is that so often we are conned by the immediate, by the overwhelming reality of the now. But when we suffer, it does produce something, but it's bitterness or anger or self-preoccupation. Paul says to those who endure, the Spirit produces fruit. The fruit of perseverance, the fruit of hope. This fruitfulness is in sharp contrast to the other way to live that's brought out in the psalm, the way of futility and fruitlessness. In a moment, we'll see the fruitlessness, but let's look first at the futility. It's the genius of the psalmist that even within such a short song, 
He gives the people a wonderful image of hope. In verse 4, the, the New International Version reads, He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Now, if you look at that verse, the words, me free from, put brackets around those because they're not in the original Hebrew. It's an interpretation by the translator, and yes, it's not desperately misleading, but it changes the original meaning subtly. The Hebrew of that phrase reads just three words, literally, he has cut the cords of the wicked. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The image you remember is of having one's back plowed, but here the image is of the cords that hold the oxen and the plow together. Those cords are broken, cut. And the oxen and their drivers are walking back and forth thinking they're achieving something, but behind them the plow isn't there anymore. The cords have been cut. There's no lasting damage being done. So it's not so much as the NIV might imply that we have been cut free from the cords of the wicked. It's more the fact that the wicked have been cut free from us. They have been cast adrift in their ploys. I remember as a child in the boys' brigade taking part in a memorable sports night. It was probably one of the things that put me off the BB for life. There was one of those team games where you had to pedal a go-kart around an obstacle course while a couple of your team members were in a little bucket buggy attached to the back of your cart. It was all quite grueling for an eight or nine-year-old. The other teams seemed to be really struggling to get moving. Since I was the biggest on my team, surprise, surprise, I was given the task of driving the cart. And I have to say, I, I was really quite surprised how easy it was. Off I zoomed, leaving the others totally standing. I was particularly aware of the shouts from the watching parents on the sidelines and the yells from my own team behind me. And I must say, I basked a little in the glory of what I thought was being such a success and everyone roaring me on to easy victory on my first attempt at having to drive anything in my life. Round the obstacles I went, very conscious of the fact that I was several lengths ahead of everybody else. Of course, when I rounded the top of the course and sprinted home in the cart, I realized to my horror that my buggy was still at the starting line. Containing by this stage two very annoyed and very frustrated nine-year-olds who had been screaming at me to come back for them. The cords had been cut. My entire journey had been futile. I thought I was achieving something and I wasn't. Or have you ever done a good 20 minutes strimming in the garden? Goggles on, maybe earplugs in, hand vibrating with the flow of electricity into the machine. And you look back after a while and think, this isn't making much impression. Only to discover that the string is finished. The cord has been cut and your actions were futile. The wicked, says the psalmist, can tramp about all they like, back and forward. And even though it seems that they have been injuring, plowing the back, let us remember it is they who have been cut adrift. And all their activity when it comes to really harming us is as futile as a broken strimmer or a nine-year-old racing around in a disconnected go-kart. The Lord has cut the cords of the wicked. He limits their power. The final book of the Bible 
gives us another image for this when it speaks of Satan being bound up, limited for a symbolic period of a thousand years. So let us never be deceived into thinking our hardships or the evil that we see on the news or experience in our daily lives, that that is the final word. No, he has the final word. The cords have been broken. The other image is one of fruitlessness. In sharp contrast to the, to the sufferer who produces fruit, perseverance, character, hope, the wicked produce nothing. They're like the weedy grass that grows in the thin layer of dusty soil that is blown onto the flat rooftops of Palestinian houses. Bits of soil there could sprout up some weeds or small plants. But what sort of harvest is that? No one is going to pass by the way they pass by the fields at harvest time and utter that traditional Israeli greeting, the blessing of the Lord be on you. That was the cultural blessing. You can see it in Ruth chapter 2 and 4 in that story of where Boaz happens to come upon Ruth's field and the first words that are out of his mouth is that the Lord bless you. It's a traditional harvest greeting but nobody's going to say that here. In contrast to the end of Psalm 126, if you look back at it, <clears throat> the righteous are promised a full harvest even though they sow in tears. The contrast is here in 129. The wicked don't sow in tears. The wicked have an easy life of it. But they also have no hope of harvest. Their rootlessness foreshadows Jesus' parable of the ground that was stony and the seed of God's word had nowhere to take root, so nothing was produced. The final phrase of this psalm is also important. A life of futility or fruitlessness, a life of endurance or blessing. The last line isn't again helped by the NIV who have put all of the words in quotation marks at the end of that verse. But of course that's a, an interpretation. There are no quotation marks uh, in the original. Uh, it, the, the NIV has made the last words actually words which don't exist. May nobody say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. But that's not the only way to read the original. I find it very strange that the psalmist ends his psalm like that with words that don't actually exist. Rather, let's end the quotation after the first half of that. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. That's the end of the traditional harvest blessing. No need to repeat it. Nobody's going to go by and say that. But the last phrase is part of the original psalm where in contrast to the wicked who have nobody to bless them, God's people live under the light of benediction and they say to one another as a conclusion to the psalm, we bless you in the name of the Lord. We bless one another. It's a phrase that's found in many other psalms. Other psalms of ascent end with a similar blessing, 125, 128. Peace, shalom be to Israel. It's far more likely that this psalm, rather than ending on the downer of words that don't exist, that the psalm ends rather with blessing, something that the wicked know nothing about. And so we can live with endurance and blessing at the end, or futility and fruitlessness. How do we do that? Well, verse 4 reminds us that this is not a simple choice to be based on preference. It reminds us that choosing the road of endurance and blessing 
It might be something we do in our better moments, but it will only be a fad to be discarded with last year's wardrobe unless we root it in something deeper. You see, the reason that we are faddish as youngsters is that we're not yet mature enough to have a focus in our lives. We have no center. We have no root. It gives an interesting perspective, of course, on adults who are equally faddish and flit from one thing to the next and are never committed, discarding people, churches, relationships, even marriages when they no longer fulfill. Immaturity as much as, as, much as adultery. But verse 4 moves us out of faddishness, moves us out of fashion and into fact. The Lord is righteous. Righteousness, of course, isn't a legal word, something that we achieve through adhering a law. But it's a relationship word. The Lord is inextricably bound in relationship to his people. And his people need to be equally committed to being in a right relationship with him. And of course, our New Testament makes clear how that is achieved, how it's possible, because we are called to walk the demanding road of, one, of Psalm 129. We're only called to do that because somebody has walked it before us. I don't know about you, but I don't think you can read those early words about the bloody furrows being plowed into the back of God's people without thinking of, and maybe you saw it graphically portrayed in the movie The Passion, the whipping cords used by the Roman execution squads to tear deep lines in the back of the victim. We cannot think of the oppression and cruelty inflicted on God's people in isolation from the supreme representative of those people, Jesus Christ, taking all of that cruelty and viciousness voluntarily on himself so that those who follow after him do so freely by faith as the righteous ones, the ones that are restored into a relationship with God. We can walk that road, folks, because he has walked it before us. And then his faithfulness, he will bring us through it no matter where that might lead. I'm reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying to Nebuchadnezzar, we believe that our God can deliver us out of the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your idol because he has something better in store for us. I'm very conscious when I speak on subjects like this, folks, that it might be easy to say, hey, what have you suffered? And I don't know what you're going through or what it might be that you're facing. That you're saying, where is the good in this? My back is well and truly plowed. I see no light at the end of the tunnel. Well, let me use as my final example something that was sent to me earlier this week. It was pr printed in First Things Journal, a journal of the Catholic Church, but one in which an Anglican bishop of Uganda, Henry Luke Orombi, was writing about the current friction within the Anglican Communion. And he was speaking generally about the Western malaise, which relativizes truth and undermines authority and has, in his opinion, produced a faith no longer worth living for and no longer worth dying for. He reminds the Anglican Communion that many of their churches are built on the blood of the martyrs. He wrote this. Tertullian's oft-quoted statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, is the story of the faith in Uganda. On his first visit to Uganda in 1885, the Englishman and missionary bishop James Hannington was martyred as he tried to cross the River Nile into central Uganda. 
He was coming to Uganda from Kenya and decided to approach the Buganda kingdom from the east. Unfortunately, unknown to him, there was a belief in Buganda that the enemies would approach from the eastern route. And so warriors were sent to encroach the enemy. Before they killed Hannington in 1885, he is reported to have said, tell the king that I die for Uganda. Later, the king ordered the killing of 26 of his court pages before, because they refused his advances and would not recant their belief in King Jesus. These young men cut and carried the reeds that were wrapped around them and set on fire in an execution pit. And as the flames engulfed them, the young martyrs sang songs of praise. Far from eliminating Christianity, the martyrdoms had the opposite effect. If the faith of these martyrs was worth dying for, then it must also be something worth living for. Living for. Martyrdom, however, is not a thing of the past. In 1977, the Archbishop of Uganda, Janani Luwum, was martyred at the hands of dictator Idi Amin. He had spoken out boldly against the injustices and atrocities of Amin. Leaders of the church were summoned to Kampala and then ordered to leave one by one. Luwum turned to Bishop Festo Kivangeri and said, They are going to kill me. I am not afraid. In 1977, February 16, Amin had Lou Wum arrested on trumped-up charges of treason, thrown into a cell with several other political prisoners. The archbishop said, let us pray. Then they were taken to Amin, brutally beaten and shot to death. The influence, says Arambi, of these martyrs <coughs> on the faith of the Anglican Christians in Uganda cannot be underestimated. The Church of Uganda has been built not only on the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, but also on its martyrs. The faith and moral vision which our martyrs died can never be denied by the Church of Uganda. Their courage and complete confidence in the God of the Bible has left an indelible mark on Christianity. Folks, that is a church that knows what it is to endure, to suffer and produce perseverance and character and hope. American pastor Tim Keller when asked about his fears for his denomination, said, quite frankly, I'm not sure some of our younger guys are prepared to suffer. If it gets a bit too hot culturally to stand by Orthodox Christianity, I'm not sure they'll last the course. How tragic. In the book of Hebrews, the writer lists in chapter 11 the hall of fame of ordinary men and women who have lived by faith in spite of their failings and imperfections. And some of them are pretty imperfect if you look at the list. And then in chapter 12, he says, with just a touch of irony to his readers, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you like sons for what son is not disciplined by his father. You see, at the end of chapter 11, he had a list of martyrdoms and tortures endured by people of faith. And yet he says to his readers, however bad it is for you at this moment, it hasn't got that bad just yet. Now, of course, it would get that bad for some of them. But by that stage, like the believers of Uganda, they would have seen and understood the righteousness of God so clearly that they would be able to say with Archbishop Lewum, they are going to kill me. I am not afraid. Why are people like that, folks? It's because Satan is bound. 
because they don't fear those who can destroy only the body, but rather him who can destroy body and soul in hell. They do it because they know the Lord is righteous and that he has cut the cords of the wicked. They do it because they know Christ and the power of his sufferings. Let us pray.